Welcome back to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good-to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina. And this is a conversation show about the way books make our lives richer. This week's guest is novelist Jess Walter. Walter is the author of seven novels, one book of short stories, and one nonfiction book. His work has been selected three times for Best American Short Stories, as well as the Pushcart Prize and Best American Non-Required Reading. He's been published in Harper's and Esquire and McSweeney's and Tin House, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other venues. He began his writing career in 1987 as a reporter for his hometown newspaper, The Spokesman Review, where he was a finalist for the 1992 Pulitzer Prize as part of a team covering the shootout and standoff at Ruby Ridge in Northern Idaho. Eventually, he wrote about this in his first book, Every Knee Shall Bow, in 1995. He's also worked as a screenwriter and has taught graduate creative writing at the University of Iowa, Pacific University, Eastern Washington, and Pacific Lutheran. He has twice won the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award for The Zero and We Live in Water, the Washington State Book Award for The Cold Millions, and was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize for The Zero. His novel, Beautiful Ruins, one of my favorites, is a New York Times bestseller and spent more than a year on that bestseller list. It was also Esquire's Book of the Year and NPR Fresh Air's Novel of the Year. The Financial Lives of the Poets was Time Magazine's number two novel of the year when it came out, and his collection of short stories called We Live in Water was long listed for the Story Prize and the Frank O'Connor Short Story Award. Walter's latest novel is the national bestseller, The Cold Millions. It's a book of historical fiction, quote, featuring an unforgettable cast of cops, tramps, suffragists and socialists, madams and murderers. It's a tour de force from a writer that the Boston Globe says has planted himself firmly in the first rank of American authors. Today, Walter lives with his wife, Anne, and his children in Spokane, Washington. Mr. Walter was kind enough to chat with me recently about the books that inspire him and the books that he loved as a kid. You know, the, the point of this show, I suppose. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the great Jess Walter. Jess Walter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking about books you love. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of your, of your work. This is going to be fun. I'm, I'm excited to hear about the books that have inspired you along the way and have kind of been your companions as you have been a writer, but I want to start much earlier than that because this is my favorite. This is kind of my favorite question to start each of these interviews with. Do you remember the first book that you really fell in love with that made you love reading? Uh, I remember areas that I read, you know, mm-hmm. uh, topics. And I mean, yeah, I lo- yeah. the first things that I loved were science. Um, okay. I, I was born on July 20th, 1965, and four years later, the first men walked on the moon. Mm. And so I loved books about astronauts and dinosaurs and, um, uh, you know, just about anything historical. Um, For some reason, I loved books about polar exploration where they were doomed. Um, The minute they had to eat the sled dogs, I just thought this is, I couldn't put it down. I would stay up all night, you know, reading books like that. Um, The first novel I remember loving was Treasure Island. Um, Mm. I had gotten a stick in my eye as a five-year-old and lost Mm. vision, so I wore an eye patch. And when you wear an eye patch, you are a pirate every Halloween. Mm. And so I loved pirate stories. I loved Cabin Boy Jim and, um, you know, just the pace of, uh, of that book. And then because it's weird how books create a sort of um, 
muscle memory or sense memory within you. And so I would read things later that, you know, even as an adult, I would read, um, uh, you know, I'd read Joseph Conrad and I would yeah. get, and I would see treasure Island, you know, in, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. in that, you know? And so, yeah, that's the first novel I remember loving reading. I remember loving, um, a wrinkle in time, mm. um, Madeline Lengel, uh, yeah. just that, that book. Uh, so those are some of the early ones that you, you ever returned to those? You know, I just reread treasure Island, um, in part because my last novel, the cold millions was about, mm. um, guys stowing away on freight trains. And I was remembering that early impulse of mine uh, and my grandfather telling me about jumping freight trains when he was a hobo in the thirties. And I just kept thinking, why do, why does this remind me of treasure Island? So I reread it. It totally stands up. It's um, it's still just, you know, everything you could want from uh, an adventure story. I feel like being a pirate and wearing an eye patch could also be good for an author. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't keep up the look. You know, there are very few five-year-old authors. So, true. Um, true. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think I was thinking along those lines. That, as it turns out, you know, there are uh, any number of writers. I, I actually do think that for writers, there's often something that pulls you out of the mainstream and puts you on the shore so you can kind of watch the stream instead of being in it. Um, some kids, it's the death of parents or a divorce or, you know, just some other quality that, that makes you more observational than, mm. than active, I think. Hmm. Um, uh, that, that's my own just amateur psycho, uh, psychology. But there were a couple yeah. of years where I couldn't go out and play with the other kids. Mm. So you sit in the window and watch them play while you read books and go to libraries. Wow, that man, yeah, that would change the course of your life in many ways, I imagine. It should have. I was it should have kept me from playing every sport, but instead um <laughs> made you want to do them more. Yeah, with a kind of uh you know and a, a, a kind of anger and resentment. I played football and baseball and basketball um all the way through high school. Every time I'd go to get my physical, the doctor would say, You're uh, small and frail and you have one eye and I would say I'm playing anyway. So, uh, yeah, just yeah, watch sheer, sheer belligerence, but it did, <laughs> it, it definitely did at that moment kind of pull me out. And then, yeah, I was, I loved libraries were my home. I, you know, we, that was what I loved. We moved to a mm. cattle ranch and community where our nearest neighbor was a mile away when I was in third and fourth grade. Mm. And I, it was sheer misery for me within six months. I had exhausted the bookmobile um, yeah. that, dro <laughs> that drove up our, our uh, driveway. You know, I just read everything on there. Did you grow, did you grow up with a, in a reading house? No, not at all. No, mm. we had the 1964 set of world book encyclopedias. Um, my dad was, uh, ninth or 10th grade dropout, um, my, and worked in an aluminum plant. Um, my mom had graduated high school and was actually, she was the one who really pushed us in education. And, you know, I ended up going into journalism and then becoming an author. My brother is the sports editor of uh, a newspaper. My sister was a library director. So mm -hmm. we all ended up kind of literary, um, I think pushed by our mom who, even mm -hmm. though she didn't have the education, um, very much was aspirational and kind of pushed us all to read. Do you think the 
literary instinct, like by which I mean the, the the skills, the sort of the sort of inner ability to tell a story and put sentences together and identify what words work together, all those things that make a good novelist. Did that come from her? Or did that come from the the grandfather who jumped trains? Or where do you yeah. think that comes from? You know, my dad and my grandfather, the train jumper, were the raconteurs. They were the storytellers. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom was very quiet. She had been abandoned by her family when she was mm-hmm. three and raised by an aunt and had, had lived mm-hmm. a really hard life, was of a generation where the most she could hope for was to be a housewife, to be somebody's wife. And so it wasn't, mm-hmm. but I've given this a lot of thought because my mom died very young of stomach cancer when she was 53 Mm. and I was nursing her at the end. And I knew she had gone back and taken one year of community college when my brother and sister and I were out of the house. Um, And so she could become a bookkeeper. And during that one year of community college, she took one English 101 class and had to write a paper and I found it. And um, it was like coming across a, um, a tape of one of your parents singing in perfect pitch. This paper was so perfectly written. It was about when my dad was on an aircraft carrier. He joined the Navy when he was 17 and um, married my mom on shore leave at 18. And she was 19 going to visit him in Oakland. And my dad was a hellion and had been denied liberty for getting in a fight. And so he couldn't leave the ship to see her. So what she did was talk a sailor into giving her his uniform and she snuck on the aircraft carrier so they could have a conjugal visit. And the, the pace with which she wrote the story, the suspense, is she going to get caught? Um, the sweetness, I was just, it was like, oh my gosh, my mom was a writer and she never had the chance, you know? And it just wasn't, you know, the, in 1962, a woman um, with no education growing up in work camps between Vallejo, California and Richland, Washington, you know, there, there was no one looking for, you know, out there looking for great literary talent. So I think that combination of my dad's storytelling and my mom really did have a literate sense of reading and writing. And she was the one who read to me as a kid, you know, um, pulled me on her lap when I uh, was a uh, weeping eye patch kid and, uh, and read me all these books. Do you remember any of the books that she loved? You know, um, she lived to see my first book published, which made me very happy. Uh, She never got to read any of my novels. Uh, I wrote Beautiful Ruins in part, imagining that she would get to read it. Um, You know, I I know she read, um, but I don't don't remember what she read. It's Mm -hmm. that... It's the torture of childhood that by the time you want to get to know your parents, they're often gone. Yeah. And then you miss them, you know? And so I think about that with my mom all the time. And I thought about it when I was reading that piece, I just thought, you know, I I would love to have talked to her about writing. Uh, She was incredibly proud. And she, I I still remember her at my first book event because she got to come to a nonfiction book event that I did. And um, that look on her face was, uh, was pretty amazing. Hmm. Do you, so when I, when I hear you talk about your mom and your dad and even your grandfather, it makes me think of characters in, in your books, sure. whether yeah. it's the cold millions or beautiful ruins or what, or whatever. Do you purposefully, are you trying to purposefully bring them in, into your books as characters? Or do you think it's just, you know, the subconscious coming, coming out? Yeah, I, I tend not to be an autobiographical writer. Um, and I'm not sure why, um, 
I respect the privacy of the people around me. Yeah. You know, I don't want my kids to worry that every <laughs> cute thing they say or, um, or mistake they make is going to show up, you know, slightly changed in a short story. Um, yeah. I value my relationships more than I do my career yeah. or yeah. more than I, uh, and I also think there's so many amazing stories out there. I was a journalist yeah. by training. And so I'm not, I, I'm outward looking, but I also look at places where in the outward, you know, in the stories that I invent or come up with or become interested in, I look for places where I connect emotionally. And mm -hmm. in that way, definitely. You know, Beautiful Ruins begins with a woman dying of stomach cancer um, coming to Italy and uh, the dying actress arrived. The only one could come directly. And it was a place I wanted to take my mom. I went there in 1996. She died in 1997. Mm. So it's impossible to think you're going to excise the people you care about and the, and the, the experiences you've had from what you write. I, I, I like to think of myself as if I am autobiographical, it's more of an, in an impressionistic way. Um, Dee Murray and beautiful ruins is not my mom. Doesn't yeah. resemble her in any way. Is there something about the ache of, of loss and of um, uh, experience and of, you know, the ruins of someone's live mm -hmm. lives that makes me think about my mom and my dad and myself. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, so I think I, I'm always finding myself thinking of, my hero, Kurt Vonnegut, and what he would say. And he always said, this isn't life. This is what life feels like to me. Mm. And I think that's, that's, that's what I strive for. Mm. Well, since you mentioned him, what's your favorite of the, what's your favorite Vonnegut book? You know, I just had to write a, a, um, uh, an introduction to Slaughterhouse-Five, which is the book of his that holds up the most. Um, I think he's, I, I think that is his masterpiece, certainly. Um, uh, the first one that I read was, was um, uh, Breakfast of Champions, uh, which, you know, as, as a 13 or 14-year-old, it was the Wheaties box cover that, uh, uh, that sold me. And the fact that it was right in the alphabet before where my future books were going to be. Um, <laughs> so I was just sort of crouching in my middle school library and it was, you know, uh, Walter right before that is, uh, is Kurt Vonnegut. So, um, and, and, and then that one, you know, the fact that he draws pictures, you know, it was just sort of, it was made for a, uh, for an adolescent who was thinking he wanted to be a writer. So you, so you knew early on, that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. You know, I, I used to tell people I was going to be a writer. Um, my siblings and I made a magazine in which we'd report on the doings of our family who got DUIs and uh, who got, uh, um, who wrecked their cars and whether or not grandpa bought a new tractor. And so from second grade on, I was a reporter and then the editor of readers indigestion, which was like readers digest, but, um, slightly altered and uh yeah so and then i was the you know i wrote short stories and published them in my junior high school newspaper and i had a column about being a bench warmer in my high school newspaper and uh and was the editor of both my junior high and high school papers so um yeah i was i knew early on that i you know and so much of it is a teacher tells you you're good at something and we all want to be good at something. And I knew I was not a good third baseman, um, strong safety. Uh, I was an okay point guard, but um, <laughs> you gravitate toward the thing that 
people tell you you're pretty good at. Mm-hmm. And then I, I loved telling stories, you know, I loved yeah. both making things up and, and also as a journalist telling real stories. Well, let, let's talk about the, the, the journalism thing, because I, I would ask you who your favorite authors or your favorite books written by uh, authors who wore eye patches. But I, I don't know how many there are. Um, there are quite a few. There's, I guess Jim um, Harrison wore an eye patch, didn't he? Harrison Faulkner. Um, oh yeah, Faulkner, of course. Um, there, I, at one time, I think I knew about twenty of them. You know, uh, when I was thinking, you know, in in those days when you think you'll pull an, an anthology of, uh, uh, of eye patched, yeah, of the uh, <laughs> monocular together. <laughs> <laughs> I'd read that. I mean, those are two pretty great authors to start with right there. Yeah, there, there are more. I, I wish I could think of all of them, but, but yeah, there, I, I, I know I came up with at least a dozen at uh, various times. Well, that's another conversation for another day, I yeah. suppose, but let's, what are some of your favorite books of journalism? Of journalism or novels by journalists? Cause I, that, that, Oh, that's I, a good, that's, yeah. Because one of my, one of you know, I don't have an MFA. I, my a newspaper was my MFA mm. and, um, I love masters of fine arts programs. I love education of all kinds. If there's a degree in the thing you love, I think you should go choose it. That said, I think we've lost something when that becomes the only path to becoming a literary fiction writer or almost the mm. only path. And so I have a real soft spot for journalists for, for writers who had a journalism background. I'll give one great example, Pete Dexter, um, mm. who was an amazing columnist at the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer and um, rough and tumble character who, whose novels, Paris Trout and the Paperboy, um, I, a National Book Award winner, not something people, someone people talk about. And it's because fiction has found its way into schools. And I don't just mean colleges, but into the school of minimalism, the school of um, mm. auto fiction, the school of Rachel Cusk style, um, empathetic uh, narrative, you know, and, mm-hmm. and those are, and, and something has been lost of the old blue collar um, storytelling journalist, mm. you know, writer, um, you know, growing up, Joan Didion was just one of my favorite writers that there mm. ever was yeah. because of, of, you know, the way and slouching toward Bethlehem and um, the white album. Uh, she just, she applies journalism. And then there's this sort of like almost seepage from the ground beneath of her own anxieties and, mm. um, and personality into it. And I loved the blend of those things. Mm. Um, uh, William Kennedy is another writer whose um, journalism background helps him write this just incredibly web of this incredible web of great stories about uh, um, about uh, Albany, New York, and um, so I, I've always had a sort of soft spot for you know Stephen Crane, Ernest Hemingway school mm-hmm. of going out and reporting something mm-hmm. as a reporter or as a writer, and then turning it into into literature, hopefully. Have you read uh, Wright Thompson or John Jeremiah Sullivan? Yeah, John Jeremiah Sullivan is, is terrific. And who is the first one? Wright Thompson. Oh, yeah, I've never, I've heard of Wright Thompson. He's, a, he, he's written a lot of profiles on athletes. Like he wrote a, one of the, some, yeah. like the most important Michael Jordan profiles. But I've always thought those two guys, like Paul Ped by John Jeremiah Sullivan. Mm-hmm. I felt like yeah. reading that, that guy, he could write a collection of short stories or a novel. Totally. Yeah. That would be yeah. incredible. 
Yeah. And I, and I think there's been that bifurcation and I think it's bad for fiction that, um, that we think that, that nonfiction is still a valid path for the journalists to take less so fiction, mm-hmm. you know, fiction writers, because they're outward looking, they tend to write books that maybe get classified as crime fiction. Mm-hmm. The, um, Hmm. Laura Lippman, for instance, who just writes these, you know, I- incredibly detailed and, um, and knowledgeable books about, you know, that they might, they might have private detectives in them or cops yeah. or crimes or social workers, you know, it, that literary fiction has in some ways ceded much of that territory to um, crime fiction. And it's made crime fiction, you know, much more interesting and better in a lot of ways. But, um, but literary fiction... Michael Connolly's uh, another great, I mean, there's so many great um, yeah. uh, writers of crime fiction out there. I, one of the writers who, whose work really inspired me early on was Richard Price. Mm. And, um, and those novels feel very much like a great nonfiction writer or reporter getting in and, you know, just embedding himself in places. And so I, I, you know, while, again, while, you know, I, I would encourage anyone to get an education in the field that's there. I do think in some ways having fewer writers um, in what we think of as literary fiction uh, who come out of journalism has, has cost, um, has cost literary fiction, some of its outward looking nature. Hmm. Uh, Leif Anger, that's another one just came to yeah, mind. Sure. He worked for NPR, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So, do you think that more, I mean, Mark Twain was a journalist, you know, you got all these, like that, was that the entryway into writing? Like that was how you wrote and now we have totally. more options. And so less yeah, people are. are doing it because of that. I mean, there was, well, first of all, there was no MFA program, then, right. you know, right. you studied either literature or, and then you're as a professional writer, a lot of the time you did journalism and, and there's still a lot of writers who still have some journalism background, um, blended in with their, um, blended in with their uh, academic career, which is terrific. Again, do, do what you can, you know, study everything. But, but at some point, I can't remember when the Iowa Writers Workshop started. It's sort of, you know, acknowledged as the first one of the 40s, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And really became, you know, I think by the 60s, it had really become, you know, embedded in, in, uh, uh, in the academic world and, and more and more all the time, you know, low residency MFA programs. And again, I think that's to its credit, to its benefit, um, but it's lost something of the working class. It just has, you know, um, when I was, I, I wanted to go to the university of Iowa and get my MFA. Yeah. And I was a, you know, 23 year old single dad, um, uh, $13,000 in college debt, which at the time seemed like all the money in the world. Um, yeah. I had just checked out a company car from the newspaper I worked for. Um, there's something about, you know, paying to go get a, a degree to write that is a vanity project and I could <laughs> never have afforded it. Um, yeah. I, I was fortunate enough to get to teach at Iowa for a semester and mm. it was wild to be there and talk to those students. And I said, you know, the first thing you need to know is I don't have the degree you have. So if any of you wants to, I'm going to turn around and if any of you wants to go, you know, jump a merchant Marine ship and uh, um, you know, spend <laughs> two years doing that, I'll understand. But I think when I turned around, they were all still there. <laughs> so um, you t- you've talked a handful of times now about the, 
the loss of the blue collar mm-hmm. um, kind yeah. of regular well, people. I, I wouldn't say blue collar. I would say, I mean, blue collar is one side of it, but yeah, um, yeah. I, I I don't think we. T- I, th- I think we have we have not considered how education um, is um, a kind of entitlement. You know, um, the if if your parents didn't go to college, your chance of of doing it yourself and earning money is, you know, and as a first generation college student, I know the first time I visited a college campus was when I drove there in my 1970 Mustang with a keg of beer in the back, you know, that was, I had never even seen a college campus. And so to not have that access point, um, you know, uh, it, it, it really is a measure of status and class that if we're not going to make it available to everyone, we're not going to get, a whole bunch of different kinds of stories. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to get um, auto fiction about MFAs. You know, we're going to get uh, and and you know because we're also telling <laughs> the campus to write. novel. Yeah, we're going to get. Yeah, we're tell, also telling people to write what they know and to not venture into other points of view that might not be like yours. And mm-hmm. um, we are we are just narrowing what fiction can do. The great thing is it will respond. It'll, it's so elastic. The novel yeah. is called yeah. that because it's novel and new. And as soon as everyone starts writing this, um, it will respond in some other way. Uh, there's also, you know, been an, an explosion of, of, you know, writers of various backgrounds that, that, that publishing ignored for years or yeah. put in, you know, they put gay and lesbian writers in one section. They put ethnic writers in another section. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, literature is a much more expansive place than it ever was. Um, but the one thing that we have not addressed is this idea that, um, you know, that if you can afford this a certain education, or if you're given a scholarship to this certain education, that you'll, you'll have the keys, you know, while, while people who are locked out of those educational opportunities, whether it's immigrants or, yeah, the working class or, um, you know, people who have been raised in generational poverty. Yeah. Those, those are the voices I don't think we're going to hear. You know, it's interesting because, I I remember I I want I also wanted to do the MFA route when I when I finished school I had an English degree but I was married we had two boys way faster than we thought yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know so life kind of comes and we had both had the the debt and I had to get a job and for a long time I felt like I was in this space where I had this sense that until I can go do that which I've never been able to do you know until right. I can go get that degree and have that set aside writing time. I, I don't have a, I don't have a shot to be yeah. successful yeah. and like, it's wrong, but in my twenties, that's how I felt Yeah, that I thought, you know, it's just, I'm, no one's going to hear me. I'm going to be yeah. writing for myself, which is, which is good. But I felt like yeah. sometimes you want people to hear your stories. Of course. And yeah. so I felt for all those years, you know, I've got four kids now and I, I yeah. it's good. I'm just open to bookstore. There's, I have no chance to do <laughs> this low, maybe, maybe one day I'll do a low rise, but I'll be like 44 and the yeah. oldest person yeah. in it, you know? And, um, I have to tell you when I, I love teaching low res for that reason, you know, and that, and I had one student who still is so inspiring. He was this teacher and he said, look, I, you know, what I want to do is just write a great story now and then, um, you know, yeah. and he had chosen his career. He had his family, had everything sort of on track and I'll still see his stories in journals and I'll think, you know, he's done it. And yeah. And the, the precision with with which he writes, but I, you know, I, I think 
I know that feeling exactly because I've always had it, you know, and I can still muster that feeling that, you know, that, um, you know, living in Spokane, Washington, my whole life, not living in New York, that I've, mm-hmm. I've somehow missed the train that I was supposed to take to, uh, you know, to literary fame or something. And, but there was a point for me where that was a kind of freedom that allowed me to write, honestly, yeah. that in which I thought, you know, um, the kids are in bed. I've got two hours. Um, I'm exhausted, but I'll open my journal and see what ideas I jotted down today. And if I'm just writing for myself, what's it even matter? And I got so much work done. I used to be a night writer. I would write, you know, my kids go to bed at nine. Um, uh, and I would write from nine to 11 or nine to midnight, or if I was really flying, it'd be nine to two in the morning. And then I'd get up and go to my job. And, um, and I would, I felt, like I felt like a revolutionary, you know, working on, on, uh, you know, some great project that was, you know, that nobody would know anything about. And I would send short stories out to magazines. And for seven years, I got nothing but rejections, you know, every, uh, I used to call them manila boomerangs because I would mail them out back when you couldn't just email, you had to put yeah. them in, you had to seal your own doom inside a second and envelope. Pay, and pay. And pay, <laughs> right. I'm paying double postage for you to reject me. Yeah. And I would throw them out and they would come Probably a submission back. fee too. No, that, thankfully there was, you know, they, they've sort of come up with the reading fee, which is yeah. a way to get that postage that they used to get. But, yeah. um, and, it, and it was hard. And my journal is filled with all sorts of, I give ups and, um, you know, it's never going to happen for me. But uh, the thing I found during that time, it was really illustrative when I was able to publish my first story collection. Cause I went back and thought, I'm going to get some of those early stories that are so good. And when I looked at them, I thought, wow, I got so much better. And, you know, those 11 years, 10 years of struggling to get fiction published were, um, but I, you know, I was reading all the time. I was, I was trying on different styles. I could see places where I was imitating, you know, various writers at the time. Here's a Carver story I sent for you. Here's a Mary Gateskill story you might like, you know, um, uh, I was going to ask you, I'm fascinated by what writers, what writers read in the midst of the struggle. So whether it's the years when you're not getting published or it's the days when you have, well, I won't call it writer's block because there are debates about whether that exists. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you know, um, so, so what were you reading during those years? Was it just why you were just trying to immerse? I I had this terrible feeling that I was, um, you know, when you, when you haven't done the homework, you have that nightmare where I just felt like I'm in a field where I haven't done any of the homework. You know, Mm -hmm. I started working at a newspaper my junior year of college, and that's kind of where my academic training ended. So I would be asked to teach in these MFA programs or, or go lecture. So I read everything. Um, And if someone mentioned something that I hadn't read, I would nod knowingly as if I'd read it and then go immediately check it out at the library. (laughs) You know, I was, my insecurity was so profound that, um, but what was I loving? I was loving Don DeLillo during that period. I, I still don't think there's a better stretch of, of novels, you know, from Mao to, to, uh, white noise, um, underworld, um, uh, the Libra, you know, Mm. that there was just that stretch of novels where I just, every time I read one of his novels, I felt as if 
another room opened in in a giant mansion you know i could just keep seeing these this kind of um expansive creativity that he was bringing to the project and this sort of larger social thing that he was doing within this arch um ironic voice i just i, I loved it um i loved edward p jones the known world and all hagar's children when that came out i just it it destroyed me marilyn robinson's books um from mm -hmm. from housekeeping through gilead um uh and it, um mary gateskill's stories uh as i read those i just thought oh the, these stories are so they just have such a coiled intensity to them and mm -hmm. um dennis johnson um <laughs> you know james welch uh there are there were so many writers, um, Percival Everett, who's just become, uh, he has a new book coming yeah. out and, uh, you know, um, Didn't and he just and get the, nominated for the national book award. No, he just the was Pulitzer. A Pulitzer. Yeah. yeah. The Pulitzer yeah. telephone, right? Yeah. Which is funny because he's one of those guys you, you sometimes feel like you're, um, like you're wearing a concert t-shirt and people are like, Oh, what band is that? You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And then you're standing on the street and a car goes by and you hear it coming out of the window of their yeah. car, you know, and yeah, you're yeah. like, Oh, everyone's going to discover this band, you know, yeah. and, uh, um, a little Spokane band. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so you want to tell people somehow you want to just say like, well, I've been reading them since 1998, you know, yeah, or whatever, yeah. you know, yeah, the, yeah. as if that's going to score you some points, you know, but, um, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I was just sort of reading all over the map and also doing what I would call remedial reading. You know, there was one summer when everyone, you know, I would just hear so many people talking about the Russians. And then yeah. I was like, so I spent a summer. To just, Tolstoy. <laughs> yeah, I did. I spent a summer reading uh, Anna Karenina and the brothers Karamazov and, um, yeah. you know, and Chekhov stories and, yeah. you know, uh, Turgenev, I'm just trying to catch up. So I felt like I was constantly playing catch up. And there was, I used to keep on my website, a list of all the books I'd read. And I went and looked through it one time and it was, it was really humbling and, um, and kind of thrilling to see, you know, how widely read I'd become. Mm. And, uh, and especially at the time, for current literature. I judged several awards, judged the National Book Awards one year, a um, uh, couple of pen awards. And when you do that, you read a sort of swath of literature that um, if those writers happen to be working in those years, then you find yourself, um, you know, uh, aware of so many different writers yeah. you know, who are out there. Um, Is there anybody that during that time just came kind of came out of nowhere and blew you away that you still remember that you would recommend, you know, listeners to this podcast, read that book. I mean, I would have said Everett, I would have said erasure, but um, now that we've mentioned him, <laughs> yeah, now that we've mentioned him, he's, he, he isn't quite as out of nowhere. Um, you know, one thing I'm noticing is, a, is a kind of calcification of my reading mind. Um, uh, you and I will finish this and I will think of 40 books that, yeah. Uh, yeah. that meet that category. Um, it's kind of why I like this though, because it's like, what's, you know, I didn't prep you with the questions ahead of time. I like to know no. what's on people's mind. Like what's, what's right. just kind of hovering there. Right. I almost have to look back at my bookshelf back yeah. there um, <laughs> because that's where they'll be. Oh, um, you recognize the spines. Yeah. I mean, but, uh, Roberto Bolano, mm. um, you know, reading Savage Detectives in 2666, just, you know, it, it was such a different 
sound and, mm-hmm. and quality. Um, from 2001 through 2006, I was engaged in writing The Zero, which is a novel about my experiences at uh, Ground Zero after 9-11. And I was reading a lot of satire at that time and and a lot of different writers hmm. you know, who were who were venturing in and out of realism, I guess. And so um, reading Celine during that period was Mm. kind of uh, terrifying. And, um, and, you know, it's funny, we tend to think that the writing that's going on around us now is the most, you know, inventive, you know, um, envelope pushing writing yeah. there is. And then you go back and read Tristram Shandy or, um, <laughs> yeah. or Cervantes and you think, Oh my God, the first novels did everything we <laughs> we can even think yeah. of. The yeah. thing was invented with its, with the most elasticity you could ever imagine. Mm. Um, but I also, there was also a period I loved the metafictionists, Robert Coover and Donald Bartha maybe came, um, you know, I, 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 and then I also had such a love of noir, um, especially James Kane. Um, Kane mm. was um, was a writer who, uh, and Patricia Highsmith. I loved her work too. Mm. Um, so, I, I, Wait, I, who I, do you? What do you like to read? Which are which of her books or and Kane's are you most fond of? I mean, the Postman and uh, and Ripley, uh, the Ripley books yeah. are, um, are I just think are masterpieces and you know, that they're able to make with that laconic, especially with Kane, with his minimalist laconic delivery, he's able to just, you know, create pure nihilism in this, you know, in a way, but in a way that, that, you know, is so appealing. And mm. when I think of Highsmith, I think of sort of folding character over and over, um, mm you know, folding the idea, one of this lesson, I I learned this lesson from this pulp novel one time that was such a great pulp novel. And that was that surprises of motivation are the most powerful in a book. Um, Mm. That someone is doing something for a reason that A, surprises you or B, might even surprise them. Um, (laughs) The ambivalence and ambiguity of of desire um, that comes out of noir to me is what's so interesting. You know, do you remember which book that was? Um, Yeah, I do. It was the Odessa file. Odessa files by Frederick Forsyth. Yeah. You know, one of those great 1960s books about um, a guy chasing Nazis and, um, and <laughs> at the end, and, and he's German, he's a German reporter, and he's chasing this Nazi who, who took all of, these, all of these concentration camp survivors and used them as a shield to make his escape from Germany during World War II, killing them off as he, as he went, even shooting a Wehrmacht captain who tried to stop him at the border. Um, and, uh, and this German reporter has come across this, this Holocaust survivor's tale of you know of this this horrible ss uh, leader using all of them as as a shield and has killed himself and the reporter has made it his personal crusade and and you <laughs> think of course he has it's a nazi we got you know this is what we do is chase nazis At the very end of the book he he's he has the nazi and you know and he has his gun on him and he says you uh, on during your escape you killed a wehrmacht captain that was my father you know total um uh, empire strikes back moment you know the uh, <laughs> um and yet i i just remember thinking oh 
even the most egregious, horrible thing that happened in the 20th century, it's still personal for this, mm-hmm. this guy. This mm-hmm. is how, and in a way, there's something deeper there. This is how it was allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. Unless it's personal, maybe we don't care. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the depth of that was just, you know, such a stirring thing to find out. And, but it made me read literary fiction differently. It made me read crime fiction differently. Noir, those, those characters whose ambivalence and ambiguity goes to the bone, I find to be um, just incredible, you know. One of the things I like about that kind of stuff that, you know, what we sort of call genre fiction, (laughs) the best of it is like you get caught up in the trappings of the genre, but then you know so quickly whether it has that aspect that takes you deeper than that you know you can read lonesome dove for example yeah it's a western and then within five pages or really within one page because he's talking about pigs you realize okay this is something more and because you have been sort of i don't want to say conditioned but i don't know what other word to use on the spur of the moment you have been sort of prepared to expect yeah certain formal elements when you get take when when you go beyond that or it gets deeper we immediately realize that it's something more they're not, it's not trying to be right you know, it's not trying well, to trick you it's it's funny i i have such a i mean the phrase everyone always uses is transcending the genre and yeah. um and i that phrase kind of bothers me because it sort of implies that the genre exists down here and you have to transcend yeah. it and i i don't think that's the case i mean i also have very little patience for mysteries that are nothing more than crossword puzzles yeah. you know yeah. um, solving and and yeah. i remember and because my first books were sort of classified as crime novels um i would get letters from people saying i knew who did it on page four and i'd say well i told you who did it on page four <laughs> <You know? point. laughs> yeah it's not like you're some great detective yeah. i said right here that wasn't the point of this yeah book. quit your job quit your job and open your own yeah put your right. own shingle detective up. agency but but i because they're I think, you know, great writing is really what transcends. And there are a lot of literary novels that don't transcend their genre, you know, that just sort of, um, that, that might have certain things to recommend them just like a crime novel can have a great plot that recommends it. Um, these might have lovely sentences that recommend it or some insight into humanity or just a really great description of Park Slope, Brooklyn. (laughs) uh, But they, they stay grounded because they don't have this, this almost alchemical um, connection of things that, 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 cause it to rise up uh lonesome dove is a great example it kind of ruined me i was just like i just i want more adventure stories you know i just want i want to follow gus and call around and um i want there to be cliffhangers and gunfights and yeah you know um but i wanted in a world so carefully created and with such attention to character the laws of tragedy and of humanity intact so that I'm not reading a book about the 15th time a librarian has solved a crime, you know, and asking myself, why do people go and keep going to her library if they're just going to get murdered? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So you, you've written within what I guess you mentioned would people call genres. You've got crime fiction, your cold millions is historical fiction. Um, You talked about how as a kid, you were interested in science and history and things like that. Do you think about it ahead of time? You know, I, I the, I'm writing this book. I, it's going to 
it's gonna be called the cold millions maybe you didn't know the title but this is yeah. what it's gonna be about this is going to be a book of historical fiction do you think i'm gonna write a crime novel do you think like do you have this goal of i want to try this now or do you just have like a character or an image and then you let it see where it takes you I don't, I, you know, early on, I was a little, I had some misgivings about being typecast and, you know, I didn't want to just write crime novels. Yeah. I, yeah. I was interested in that. I'd been a police reporter, but I, yeah. I, I didn't want those expectations to follow me. And, um, and then I just kind of stopped thinking about it, honestly, um, because again, I'm not inward looking because I admire writers who show range and can, you know, uh, I love the way Colson Whitehead doesn't really think about it. He yeah. really writes. Have you read of, Harlem Shuffle? I haven't yet. I'm so excited for I it. Just, yeah. yeah. I got the uh, copies in for the store Yeah, and immediately I was like, I'm sure. <laughs> dove yeah. In. yeah. And one of his favorite books to mind is the intuitionist, which is early. You know, yeah. Early and a and a, uh, a kind of noir about um, about a, uh, an elevator inspector, although the elevator inspector is kind of uh, allegorical, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but also just really rich in the writing. So um, sorry, yeah, I got excited. Interrupting. Well, that's you. right. No, no. So, but but having that uh, deciding that I was going to just act as if genre didn't exist, and 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 just let the story determine where it wants to go. Yeah. When when I decided I was going to write about 1909 America, and and write about l- lumber camps and labor organizers and vaudeville singers, it just it felt like the last gasp of the Western novel. So it felt very much like a Western. There was a point at which it was going to be called nothing West of dead. And it was going to be even more of a Western. Mm-hmm. It's my dad's favorite genre. He's kind of at the end of his life. And I thought it'd be a nice kind of dedication to him, a lifelong labor guy to write a labor novel mm-hmm. as a Western. So I think I did write into it a little bit at that yeah. point, yeah. but not, not ever thinking this is where it'll go in the bookstore, or this is the kind of book it is. It's almost like the book itself tells you what it has to be. You know, you, mm-hmm. if you put a banjo in, there's probably a pretty good chance. It's not going to be a hip hop song, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, right. um, and I, and I definitely put a banjo in this one. So yeah. it kind of went where it had to go. Americana, I guess. Have you read, um, um, you probably have Immortals, um, whether it's oh, Gentleman yeah. in Moscow, or he's got a oh, new book coming out too. Yeah, he has a new book coming out. I just, I, I love Gentleman in Moscow. We're doing an event together, and okay, and, oh, and that's, the, that's a good event. Yeah, it's uh, we're at, uh, it's at Powell's, although it's yeah. virtual, so they're all yeah. kind of you know. Um, yeah, but no, I, I I so loved that book, and it's. Um, Again, it's one of those books that just... This is Moscow you. you're talking about. Yeah, 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 General Moscow. I haven't read um, The Lincoln Highway, I think is the name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. October um, 5th, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're doing an event, I think, October 12th. So, okay. um, you know, I, I, I would love to write something with that patience and that, um, that you know, a, a character that just fully realized and mm-hmm. in a world that's fully realized. I love that book. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I read... I was late to the gentleman in Moscow, mm-hmm. you know, it got, I think I was too pretty yeah. big. And yeah. it was one of those things where it got so big where I was like, eh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just wait, you know, but I read cold millions. And then I read a gentleman in Moscow right after it. I actually read both of his previous two novels this year. Yeah. And, uh, the, the rules of civility. Yeah. Rules of civility. Yeah. yeah. And, um, right after either right after or right around the same time I read cold millions. And, uh, 
I, I got to tell you, I, they feel similar to me. Like they feel like That's you guys so either funny. were reading the same things <laughs> or are from the same, think about the world the same way or something like, and I have this idea for a book in my head and like the cold millions and uh, beautiful ruins. And then his books are like, when I started getting this idea, those were the books that were in my head as what I would like them to be like. I mean, I think that, um, thank you, first of all. Um, and it's funny when I read it too, I was like, it's funny. You could not imagine different worlds or characters yeah. to immerse yourself in, but I did feel a similar, almost suggestive historical research technique or something. Yeah. I can't even really explain it, but, but I love what you said about that because um, when, when I sit down to write, I do have a sense of a kind of platonic ideal of the particular story I'm telling. What would be the best, you know, and, and that comes from, you know, when I was writing The Cold Millions, I was thinking, I was thinking about Larry McMurtry. I was thinking about E.L. Doctorow. I was thinking mm. about William Kennedy. I like um, how there's like a broadness to these two. So that you yeah, didn't say no, Larry uh, McMurtry, Cormac, but you know, it wasn't no, I, but I was, you know, I was thinking about Edward P. Jones in the known, known world. I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about Paulette Giles. I was thinking about all these different stories I'd read and the way they affect me and, and a thing they do that I can't put my finger on. But I, but again, it feels like a platonic ideal. I think True Grit is the is is the best version of that story that could exist um mm. and that and what qualities are you know give it that that's feeling. my favorite book some days is it yeah some <laughs> like, days yeah, like yeah. four yeah. days out of the week true grit might be my favorite book <laughs> yeah and then and then books that come out of the sort of you know the true true grit school um m- one of my favorite novels of all time is 100 years of solitude by gabriel mm-hmm. garcia marquez mm-hmm. and i'll even go so far as to make overt references to the things that I love in the work. So I decided um, the cold millions would start in 1864 with the kid going over the waterfall and it would end in 1964 that I, um, with, with Rye um, at the, you know, retiring from Kaiser aluminum. Now it's, no one is going to read those two novels and say, well, look, he clearly cribbed a hundred years of solitude. (laughs) They almost couldn't be more, um, uh, they almost couldn't be less alike, but there's something else that the way musicians borrow from one another or influenced by one another that I think works with writers too. um, a melody, a, um, uh, uh, a progression, um, you know, a vibe that you get from these things that, that you try to incorporate. And you do that consciously? Like, are you? I do it sometimes overtly. Yeah. My very first novel, um, called Over Tumble Graves, um, is so full of illusions. The title, first of all, comes from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and every all the characters are named from the wasteland. The structure is the same as the wasteland. I had promised my editor at the time that I would never tell anyone that, you know, that poem that you hated <laughs> studying in college, I've turned it into a thriller. It's a now a serial killer novel. Yeah. But I, I like to wear my influences that way um, because they're important to me that, yeah. uh, you know, I, I know that I, I, I can tell the ways that I'm influenced. The, the characters in the zero have every doctor has a name from classic literature, from Celine, from Camus. Uh, I, I, I want I, I, my, those illusions are so important to me. The things I read are so important and they, and they come in in a sort of um, uh, they come in in a, in, not entirely in a conscious way. And so 
for me to make those kind of conscious references feels right. You know, the, um, you know, I, the very first sentence of hundred years of solitude many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia would recall that distant afternoon when his father first took him to discover ice. As I was writing beautiful ruins, I was thinking, I want to write a big winding sentence like that. Um, yeah. uh, the dying actress arrived in his town. The only way one could come directly in a boat that motored around the pier bumped against the rock jetty. Uh, bumped or motor around the pier and bumped against the rock jetty. Um, it was my own way of writing a winding sentence that had a whole novel contained in it. And mm. so again, no one's going to read those two sentences and say, you crib this sentence. It's, you know, it's a totally different sentence, but the sound inspired me the same way a musician, you know, musicians in the 1960s were inspired hearing the Memphis sound or something, you know, it inspires you to, to take it into your own work in some way. So, so, so Sam writing a short story, Sometimes I'll think the, the short stories that I most love, like say I had to create a Mount Rushmore of the, of the short story writers that I most love. I'm going to do, you know, there's a, I think Hemingway's written a few stories that are just like perfect. Right. Um, yeah. O'Connor. Yeah. Um, I, my, my Mount Rushmore would be Alice Monroe's head would be the biggest by far. But, okay. Uh, I do love Monroe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But, but, but like maybe I have a couple of people who, when I think of how I want to write short stories, uh, for me, Gerganis is on that too, North Carolina yeah. writer. Maybe it's yeah, just because yeah. we're from the same place. Oh, which is huge and important. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then I have like a couple other writers who, when I think of if I were to write a novel, yeah, they would be the writers that I would want to write a novel like. Do you ever think about your short story writing and your novel writing differently. Side question before you answer that. Yeah. What time zone are you in? <laughs> oh, uh, West coast. So I've got, yeah, I've got plenty of time. You don't need to leave in two minutes then. Okay. Nope. No. Nope, okay. No, okay. No. I mean, you can leave in two minutes, but yeah, no. Um, yeah. Uh, behind me that the middle of the short row where the books are stacked kind mm -hmm. of horizontally, yeah. um, is where I, I just finished putting a story, short story collection together. And so I had all of these short story collections that I love in there. Um, uh, so yeah, some Alice Monroe, um, as I said before, Edward P. Jones, I've got mm -hmm. Jim Shepard in there. I've got, um, Ben Fountain, uh, just some, uh, Anthony Doerr, uh, yeah. Karen Russell, just a bunch of short yeah. stories. All right. And, um, and I do find inspiration in seeing how did they put their collection together? Which story went first? There's yeah. a certain point where, um, you know, where the story itself, uh, leaves all of its influences behind. You know, yeah. um, for me, that's important in getting started in the sound. Um, and then the characters and the sound of the piece really take off. And so those things are more important in the beginning, maybe, than they are later. Um, in structuring the Cold Millions, I gave it the same structure as War and Peace. Um, but I did that, you know, a month in. Um, at, at that yeah. point, everything else sort of falls away. And the structure is really a crutch. It's um, scaffolding for me to use. Yeah. And so the building inside, when I take the scaffolding down, the building inside is whatever I built. I did the brickwork. I put the windows in. I did all of the interior design. You know, Tolstoy couldn't help me at that point. You know, yeah. and, and I may not have even needed the scaffolding. Or in some places, I may have gone around the scaffolding and built, you know, a, a four feet higher than I was supposed to or something. So I, I find it helpful in, a, in the place where inspiration and the desire to write and the desire to achieve something beautiful start. And once the writing gets going itself, um, then it's me 
you know, the, and, and, and for so, better or for worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's just and, you. And, and like a lot of buildings where you can still see where the scaffolding was, you know, you might still be able to see it, but yeah, for better and usually for worse. <laughs> With short stories, you know, I, th- I think those, those original stories that moved me in some way, and I grew up in, in, in the shadow of Carver. So Ray Carver's stories yeah. hit me in a way that, um, that, you know, that, that still sort of speaks to me. My friend Sherman Alexi's stories were the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that some of those struck me in such a way that they became part of the way that I, that I saw short fiction. Um, uh, and then some writers that I came along later, um, Mavis Gallant, just the way that a story of hers could have a kind of undercurrent that I, I don't think I'd noticed before. And then, uh, and then, you know, some writers whose work was, so alien to me want, you know, causes you to push it in different directions. Um, Robert Coover, who I talked about before his story, going for a beer, what he does with time and that, um, Bartholomew's the school, Clarice Lispector stories. Mm. There, there, there are all these people whose writing I almost aspire toward. Um, uh, and then Tobias Wolf, um, you know, there, there are two writers I got to know Richard Russo and Tobias Wolf, who for me were, uh, I never had an actual mentor and both of them, I don't really know well enough to call mentors. So um, they would probably get uh, restraining orders if they knew they were my mentors. Uh, um, but just watching, you know, reading all of their work, uh, being completists of a writer like that. Nick Hornby was another one, you know, whose work just, um, you know, and, and happen, ha- coming along and meeting them just as, as an author does out in the world turned out to just be to give me kind of role models for how I wanted to go through the, go through the world. You know, it's interesting. My next question was going to be whether you have, like, can you point to four novels that would be like your Mount Rushmore novels? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that's hard to do because you go, you know, people in the, in yeah. the world and all that. I mean, not just in the world, but in the writing world, you have friends who are novelists. Yeah. And I was thinking, I can do that. I know the four novels that I love probably the most other than like, other than the novels that were the novels I loved as a kid. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Then I'm realizing, oh, the four novelists that I would point to that wrote the novels that I love the most, I want to read everything they've written. Yeah, right. I used to phrase it this way when I taught. I would say, imagine you're starting a religion like Catholicism and you need three people to be your father, son, and Holy Ghost. (laughs) And now imagine that you have a million saints, you know, you can have an, a Hindu yeah. number of, uh, of, uh, <laughs> of others, you know, and, um, That's uh, yeah. And, 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 and that for me was a way to almost locate what it is you're trying to do as a writer. And so I used to always say that my three were some combination of at the time, Joan Didion and, Kurt Vonnegut and Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Don DeLillo or, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. just, I was just always cycling people through there, but then there's the kind of fiction you write and the kind of thing you aspire toward too, you know, and, you know, reading, um, John Williams Stoner. Uh, oh man. A few, a few years ago and just thinking, wow, could I do that reading? You know, uh, when I was writing the zero reading all of that powerful, all different kinds of powerful satire, including, as we talked about, Percival Everett's erasure. Um, you know, there, there are entire categories, you know, again, DeLillo and, and the sort of otherworldly thing that he creates. Paul Oster can sometimes create a similar thing. Mary Robeson. It, it almost, I, I do end up 
thinking more like, you know, like a believer in Hinduism, that there should just be, you know, that there should be uh, an infinite number, you know, because these things are all so different. They affect you at different times. If I came across Vonnegut now, would he be my favorite? No, he was my favorite when I was 19, 20, 23, and, you know, in that range. So he has a kind of hall of fame status that um, I don't find myself, you know, going back to his books the way I once did. Um, you know, and, you know, Richard Ford for a while was someone, you know, whose work I just, I, I, I had to get the minute it came out, you know, wildlife is one of those books. That's just like, Oh yeah. That was another terrific set of stories. Yeah. So for me, you know, I, we have mentioned four. Oh, I mean, I could, I, I could tell anybody my four. I don't even know that they're like, I probably should have like brothers K and, and a current on them. Um, but like for me, the, my four favorite novels, and that have, have been for a long time, probably will be in my favorite novels till I die. Wow. You um, think till you die. This well, is I don't not, know. I'm just saying though, they probably, maybe not my top four, but they'll be, I find, they'll this, be books kinda, I I find this kind of controversial because if you, cause I feel like if they are your favorite, you should have to listen. You should have to reread them every year. Oh, well, I mean, I, I I've read the, each of these many times. All right. Okay. Um, so I would say, I'm not saying they will be my four favorite, right? but there'll be books that I return to. Yeah. Unless I, something changes a lot about me, which gotcha. is possible. But yeah. I mean, Lonesome Dove and True Grid are up there. We've talked about those. And then the two we haven't talked about would be Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. Oh, so great. And yeah. Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. Oh, I've and, never read Brideshead Revisited. And the thing that I'm realizing about those novels is those are writers who, when you read their other work, I mean, even, even someone like McMurtry, who is kind of known as a Western writer, yeah. he's written a lot of stuff that's not he wrote Hollywood yeah. novels and he wrote books yeah. that are, you know, basically teen novels that, you know, they, maybe they take place in the West, but they're not really yeah. Westerns. And yeah. Wa wrote, he wrote satire of the bright young things era. Yeah, um, yeah. And Charles Portis wrote Southern novels and, yeah. and Wallace. Well, well, uh, this is what I mean about having these categories. Like, um, if I, if I were going to come up with a 19th century category, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Tolstoy and um, and Conrad and you know and you know I do or, love Jane Eyre. I also should add that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I should probably add Frankenstein. Yeah. You know? But to go to um, to imagine yourself, you know, reading these, you know, in all these different directions, you know, and 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 what makes something last as your favorite, you know, and and do the the sixteen sequels and prequels to lonesome dove take away your love for it you know it's like not so far um, (laughs) (laughs) it kind of did for me i sort of wanted it to just exist as this singular piece because so much of it is dependent upon the history of these characters as has-beens as they've already lived this life um and so to then see the life was as disappointing as it could be, even though they're great books, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but they, they don't, you know, they, in a way they can't live up to the, to the shadows that they cast on those characters faces when I imagine them the first time, you know, and again, that's not McMurtry's yeah. fault in a way. I was so glad that he wrote those sequels and prequels. Cause I, I raced to them, you know, um, yeah. to read them. You know, it's interesting. I've probably read Lonesome Dove four times before I read any of the other ones. And I, and I haven't read, the second prequel. I read the first one when they're getting started and I'm kind of unsure if I want to read the second one because it is almost too close to what happened in Lonesome Dove. Yeah. Um, So wait, I forgot the fourth. Brideshead Revisited, Portis and 
Um, oh, uh, Stegner's Crossing the Safety. Oh, Crossing the Safety. Yeah. Yeah. Another great book. Yeah. yeah. Stegner's, uh, he's wonderful. Yeah. I think he's, you know, I think about when he taught at Stanford and yeah. he, you had Wendell Berry, yeah. Ernest Gaines, I, Ken Kesey, I think was there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh, speaking of Ken Kesey. So if you're a McMurtry fan, have you read all, all my friends are going to be strangers? Uh, I, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So that there's, that is about, uh, you know, uh, McMurtry having his first success with horsemen pass by. And then he goes at one point to Stanford where he sees a writer named Teddy blue, but that's actually Ken Kesey. Um, okay. so if you go back, I didn't know that. If you go, yeah. If you go back and read it, he goes to Teddy blue's house and Teddy blue is living in Stanford with all these proto hippies in 1964. Yeah. Everyone's dropping acid and sleeping together. And yeah. he, and he has a moment with Faye, um, Kesey where, you know, is she really on board for all this craziness? And it's <laughs> such a great, um, such a great, all my friends are gonna be strangers is one of my favorite novels, um, when I was younger yeah. and, and it does not have, it's, it's not as, uh, I would never recommend it as much as Lonesome Dove, except for writers, because it really shows McMurtry struggling with all that stuff. And there's a one point where he's finished his novel and he lets it go. I think in the Rio Grande, he lets, there's this moment of him just putting his novel in the river and letting it take the pages away. That is, um, you know, for a writer who's struggled, as you said, with writer's block or with, you know, are people going to notice me or what's this all about? It's a terrific book uh, to watch McMurtry back when he still had doubts about all that stuff. And, yeah. 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 I mean, McMurtry is both inspiring and in, and in a absolutely like the worst role model, I feel like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he wrote so many books. He, he talked about how it came easy to him. Yeah. And I think that's not probably realistic for every writer to aspire to. Uh, I think it probably isn't, but I do think we put things in the way of our creativity sometimes, you know, if it came easy to him in part because he was just fascinated by those stories, you know, and yeah. he wanted to delve deeper into them. He wasn't going to play, you know, a bunch of postmodernist metafictional tricks. He was going to tell big, yeah. tell stories, expansive stories. Yeah. yeah. And characters um, came first. Yeah. Characters came first. Stories came first. Um, you know, he's at the same time he's doing, you know, he's collecting all that research and, you know, and, um, that's the thing I always tell writers is if there's something you, that you are so fascinated by, you owe it to yourself to just chase that and mm -hmm. write that story. And that's kind of what I did with the cold millions was I'd always been interested in this period of historical, of, uh, of early labor and, yeah. and, and of the teeming streets of that time. And especially in this place. And so, you know, um, was it the, was it a smart career move to follow, you know, a big, you know, epic romance, like, uh, the, like beautiful ruins, although I call it an anti-romance with, uh, you know, with the dark, <laughs> yeah with a dark book about, you know, socialist labor, probably not, but I knew it was the thing that I was just the most interested in. And, and I think that's in the end, what drives our reading and it has to be what drives our writing. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot easier to, to, uh, fight that writer's block that we gently referred to and didn't get back to. Um, if yeah. you're writing into something that you want to know yourself. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Can I ask you one more question before I let sure. you go? Yeah. Okay. So this idea of like writer's block, writing about something that you are interested in yourself. 
you mentioned earlier the phrase, write what you know. We're telling people, yeah. you know, write what you know. But oftentimes those two things are not the same thing. Not at all. Like yeah. you don't, I, I'm interested in and all I, kinds of stuff and, that I would, could never have experienced. Yeah. I'm giving away all my little teaching tips for free, but um, <laughs> I used to just turn on its head and say, know what you write. And I am a huge researcher. And then I also love what the, you know, the, the, the American master of our times, Tony Morrison said, which is I wrote, beloved because i wanted to read it um mm. and that sounds like really you know it sounds almost like a buddhist cone or something but just think about if you were fascinated by texas rangers of course you'd go right lonesome dove you know um what happened to texas rangers after they left you know when they you know um if if that's where your research leads you just drive yourself into it drive yourself into the research the part you will bring to it if you're writing Great fiction is human beings. And that is above, below, all around the research. Immerse yourself in a world of pirates and then don't just give them the same old stupid pirate desires, but give them desires you know from watching human beings around you. Invest them with your brother's, um, you know, uh, sense of male insecurity. Not my brother. <laughs> my brother's so secure. But Yeah, mine um, too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Invest them them with your own, you know, misgivings about your place in the world, you know, um, that it intersect with the humanity of characters in worlds that you're fascinated by. And, and that's what's always driven me with fiction. So, and, and, and continues to, you know, the novel I'm writing now, um, which I'm just sort of getting started in, I will immerse myself in research. I will try to figure out what it was like, what it would be like to be a college basketball player, which this character is going to be. And I'll be really fascinated by the 1960s Venice Beach surf scene and, you know, and, um, and those kinds of things, you know, having them click together, make it for me so much easier to, to just keep going. Can I ask for problem. one book that you're reading as a piece of research that you would recommend to people? Oh, um, you know, uh, I'm mostly reading magazine articles right okay. now. So yeah, yeah. I am reading books for, uh, for blurb right now, a whole bunch of people, uh, because I, yeah. <laughs> I just turned in a short story collection. And so everyone wants to, um, but, uh, I take these, um, you're swapping, I you're swapping take, blurbs. I am. No, no, I'm not swapping. These are, I'm trying to do mostly first novelists because they're okay. the ones who tend not to know people. And so I think all the ones, most of the ones I'm reading now are first novelists. And that feels, I'm, I'm not one of those writers who gives a blurb without reading the book, not yeah. because I feel like I'm some special person, but just, I think it's worth nothing if you, you know, what's the point if you haven't read the book? So, yeah. Yeah. so I can be sort of a slow blurber, but um, uh, I had not read uh, Rachel Cusk's outline and I recently read that and thought it, it was pretty great. Um, I don't know if I'll, if I'll keep following it through the trilogy to see um, what, uh, what other people surrounding the Rachel Cusk like character have to say, but I, I, I could totally see why people are, you know, are, yeah. uh, are enwrapped with that series well 
I appreciate the time. I, yeah, you stayed thanks. a lot longer than I told you you would have to. So I, oh I, well, you know my uh, my uh, the person who helps with my calendar just puts it on there, and I just go wherever I'm told. So, <laughs> but I should probably go get a glass of water and clear yeah. my throat before my next one. So. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, yeah, thank thanks, you for coming David. to this Zoom room, and I look yeah, uh, cool. look forward to the new novel. Thank you. Yeah, and keep going. I want to read this. Uh, those children have to sleep sometime. Keep writing. <laughs> yeah. 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 They rarely sleep enough, but yeah. I was going to say, they don't really have to sleep <laughs> yeah. sometimes. But the well, thank you. Just keep writing. Keep All right. I, thank you. Take I appreciate care. that. Bye. Well, that was Jess Walter. Uh, thanks to him for joining me here on the podcast. And I really enjoyed that conversation. Hope you did as well. His new book is called The Cold Millions, and it's available now in paperback wherever books are sold. If you'd like to order from us here at Goldberry Books, you can head over to bookshop.org slash shop slash Books. Thanks so much for listening, and please be sure to tell your friends about the show in whatever form you'd like to do so. We certainly do appreciate that. For all of us here at Goldberry Books, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading, and on this Thanksgiving week, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>